listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Walker webcast. Uh, before I start with Jason, I want to make a quick comment on the ongoing conflict in Israel, uh, as I did at the start of last week's Walker webcast with Peter Lineman. Uh, we're still shocked and saddened by Hamas's terrorist attack weekend before last and the loss of life and peace in Israel. Uh, I'm pleased to say that all four Walker Nullop employees that were in Israel with their families when the terrorist attack happened are safely back in the United States. Uh, but we have many colleagues with family and friends in harm's way inside of Israel, and we're here to support them uh, at every turn. Um, finally, the discrimination and anti-Semitism that is appearing across the country and around the world has no place in a free society, and we must be vigilant in pushing back against it in any and all forms. With that, uh, to start things off, to my friend Jason, who has just jumped on the video feed, um, Jason Ferris Blum, uh, middle name is Wild or Savage in Ferris, son of an art dealer and art history professor. Founded Blumhouse Productions in 2000, and after his first breakthrough success with Paranormal Activity, he has spent the last decade making global box office hits such as The Purge, Insidious, The Invisible Man, and M3 Gan. Is that is it M3 Gan, Jason, or M3? Oh, Megan, 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 Megan. See, I, you got, I, these are things that your under 24 demo understands right. that your 56-year-old buddy Willie doesn't. Uh, what Fortune Magazine writer deemed, quote, little more than the catering costs on a Marvel movie, unquote. Uh, Blumhouse has created uh, tense thrillers such as Black Klansman, Whiplash, and Get Out that all received Oscar nominations. Blumhouse has produced over 200 movies that have grossed over $5.7 billion at the box office. Blumhouse was a fast company list of brands that matter in 2023, companies that forge an emotional connection with their customers. Jason is a graduate of Vassar College, where he was the 2020 commencement speaker. I would highly recommend that speech to anybody who wants to um, have a fun time listening to a great commencement speech. He's on the board of the Public Theater of New York, the Sundance Institute, Vassar College, and the Academy Museum of Ocean Pictures. He has 315,000 followers on X. He is a fitness nut. He is known as the Santa of Halloween. And so I'm super honored to call a friend. So, Jason. That was a good intro. I like that. Thanks, man. I tried. I like wow. All right. Uh, so there's so many places to start. Let's start here. A lot of people who are listening in today have read Michael Lewis's book, Moneyball, about the Oakland A's and how their general manager, Billy Bean, used different stats. Read it. And other major league baseball teams. Familiar with it. What's that? Very familiar with it. I know you are. Um, such as on-base average to build a championship team, essentially having a low-cost roster that produced exceptional results. And a lot of people have compared your model at Blumhouse to Moneyball and saying it's the Moneyball of the movie industry. I don't think that's right. Do you think you're the Moneyball of the movie industry? I actually do. 
it's a much yeah we we get we get you know we get we get compared to Roger Corman who I love and I think that is there's we're totally different our model is totally different than 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 his but the moneyball model is very applicable to our to the way we operate our business and and and, and the most applicable part I think is that what I mean Billy he he did a, he did so many things that were so interesting but what he really did was um look at these you know focus on things that weren't sexy but like the the stats that weren't like the sexy stats and and it's different now but when we started you know horror was kind of in the ghetto just doing horror generally was not was kind of not cool and very specifically especially in the early days of the company we chose directors I mean, this is a very specific example of Hollywood and the studios are set up in such a way that they either choose first time directors or directors who have only had success, which is our, in our business almost impossible. They're, the, the, a studio would, and it's still today even true, a studio would prefer to choose a first, a director's done a few shorts and is like, there's a lot of buzz around than a director who's made four movies, two of which have worked and two of which haven't. We would always choose the director who's done the two movies that worked and two haven't, and that's kind of a very Moneyball thing. And then I think the other thing that that is um, that's akin to Moneyball is that the bet on yourself model. Like our movie business is based on if the thing you make works, everyone gets paid. If it works really well, everyone gets rich. And if it doesn't work, you don't make very much money. And that's also very unusual in mainstream Hollywood. But it's also a concept that um, Billy Bean would have loved. It's interesting. So, A, I concur with everything you're saying. I guess as I looked at what you've done, I view you as a venture capitalist more than as a producer. And the reason I call you a venture capitalist is because you've created a business model that allows you to um, invest in ideas, just as venture capitalists do, but do it in a portfolio manner where if something hits, it hits and you get massive returns off of it, but you've limited your downside by the size of your initial investment. And um, I guess the only other thing that I saw a little bit different from that is just your focus really on, um, not that that Billy Bean didn't focus on talent and trying to find talent, but you have a business model that is so prescriptive as it relates to what you're looking for, what you're looking for in a script, what you're looking for in a director, what, and then how you manage the money around it. That I just, I sat there and sort of said, yeah, there's some things, but I, I kind of viewed what you do much more along the venture capital model and the way that you can make so many wide bets, have some payoff famously, but then also, and we're going to get in this in a moment, but because of your distribution model, Jason, you have the ability to sit there and say, we're not going wide with this. We're going to put it onto streaming and we're going to recoup our costs. And I thought that that sort of downside protection and the way you built your business model is much more relevant to kind of an investing strategy rather than an operating strategy, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's true. And we are like a venture capitalist. We take we take uh, six to eight, you know, bets, bets a year and we keep the bets small unless it's a proven property, right? Unless it's a sequel or IP that already exists. But if on the originals, which we hope will create IP and create franchises, we take small bets and um, 
you know, my favorite stat about the company is we have we have the highest ratio of if you take our budgets against our gross, we're about 10x, which is which is more than anybody else. It's more than Marvel. It's more than because our costs are so low. It's more than anybody else. So that's my favorite stat of uh, of Blumhouse and the, the statistic I'm probably the most proudest of of the company. Talk about the sequels for a second. I'm jumping way ahead, but you just raised it as it relates unless we're making a sequel. A, you spend more on the sequels, but B, something I heard you say that I thought was so interesting was if you're going and making a Marvel movie and you're going to spend 300 million bucks making it, you better damn well have a sequel ready behind it because you invested so much to make the first one that you have to have an ending that sort of leads into the next one. Whereas with the way that you make movies, the movie better stand on its own. And, yeah. and, and one of the directors that you had on a panel that you were talking to, maybe at Sundance, where you asked, what's the most important thing to do? And he said, get the ending right. And I was like, I was sitting there thinking about in my world and the fact that when we go make pitches, we try and make sure that the whole pitch goes well. But as I heard that, get the ending right, it made me think about like every pitch we go do, forget about like the story leading up to it, make the ending right. But you end your movies right. And then if you have the opportunity to make a sequel, you do, but you don't invest in the first one thinking about the second one. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, we end most of them right. You know, it, it's true. The ending is so much more important than the rest of the movie. We don't end all of them right. You know, the the biggest, the biggest, you know, Exorcist definitely underperformed per, for us. And the reason is we didn't end it right. We, we tried, by the way, we tried. We worked on that ending over and over and over and over, um, but we couldn't get it right. And the movie really, really is really good and really works for the first hour. And then the next part, you know, does just doesn't work as well. And that is very, it, it's like, like you, to your point, it's much better to have it the other way around, first of all. And then the second thing is, yes, when we're making an original, directors are very used to and writers are very used to talking to studios who are always thinking about what's the sequel going to be. And I, I try and erase that from the creative person's mind because it is so hard to make an original movie that connects with an audience. To make an original movie that connects with an audience and also is a setup for a second movie, first of all, it's like counting your eggs before they, counting your chickens before they hatch. And, and second of all, it's too many parameters around the creative process. And the example I always use is Paranormal Activity, which is the greatest example ever of, you could, if something works, you can make a sequel no matter what. It's a found footage movie. So just the notion that, oh my gosh, they found another set of more, we made six paranormal, we made six or seven paranormal activity movies, but just the very notion that, oh my gosh, they found more footage is so absurd, but the mo the first movie worked so well that the audience, you know, gave us that, the audience allowed us to take that, you know, huge leap and we made six more movies behind it. So I always tell, I always tell our filmmakers to fi figure out what the best version of your movie is without thinking about a sequel, you know, and there are a lot of other things too that I, you know, that I think they feel pressure to do. I, the, the thing I, the thing that I do put a lot of pressure on, on, on them about is you have to keep the cost very low on an original. That's very, very important. And, um, you know, for us got to keep it very scary, but don't, but don't worry about the next one. <laughs> so, so on that, that's the business model today. But when you started out, Jason, the, the, that model, which you now have have nailed was not the reason that you created Blumhouse. So let's just back up for a second. You were an executive at Miramax. You worked for the Weinsteins. Um, you, you missed investing in the Blair Witch Project, which you were never allowed to forget about. Uh, 
But talk about for a second why you started your own business, because it wasn't because you had this great business model. What we've just talked about as it relates to being a venture capitalist in the movie industry, if you will, or being the money ball of the movie industry was not why you jumped out on your own to begin with. Why did you jump out to create Blumhouse to start with? No, I definitely didn't. And I'm very skeptical when we hear, you know, we hear business plans of of entertainment companies relatively often. And I'm very skeptical, skeptical of like, we're going to attack this a new way. I suppose this is true in all industries, but certainly in the in the in the entertainment business, actions speak louder than words. So so make hit movies. And if you've made a few hit movies, then I'm interested in your process. But don't talk to me about your process before it's delivered hit movies. It's not, it's not, it's 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 just BS, you know, that's just ridiculous. So to that end, you know, what 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 and to answer your question, I had worked at Miramax and there were things that I learned that I were very helpful and a lot of things that I saw that I thought if I, when I have my own company, I'm going to do this very differently. And I was on one mission, which was get a hit movie because that opens up every door for everything else. You're exactly right. It wasn't like, I'm going to make low budget movies. We're going to give directors creative control. Like to, to have those words come out of someone's mouth who's never really produced a movie, even though I'd been at experience in the business for so long is absurd. So I was looking for any way to to figure out a hit movie, you know, in any genre. And what I learned, I was 30 years old in 2000 and I that's what I left. And I made a, a handful of independent movies. None of them really worked um, in any serious way. And what I what I thought I actually wanted at that time, I thought the quickest way to do a hit movie was to make a big, big studio movie. I thought that, you know, and, and by the way, the odds of a studio work movie working versus an independent movie are much higher. You're much better off with a studio movie, much, much better. So that's what I was trying to do. And um, I, it just so happened that in the mid, you know, 2005, 2006, in my mid thirties, I, I wound up doing two movies at the same time. I did The Tooth Fairy, which was the, the only traditional studio movie I have ever produced, which was a at that time a much bigger budgeted very traditional down the middle studio movie. And I did, um, and I started producing Paranormal Activity. And the movies came out at the same time. And I had these very um, interesting experiences through both movies, which was when I was finished producing The Tooth Fairy for Fox, all the things that I thought it was going to be, it wasn't. And it turned out to be a very frustrating experience. But the distribution, the studio distribution of The Tooth Fairy, was amazing. And it was everything that I hoped for and more. Paranormal Activity was made like the other independent movies that I, that we had made. And it was terrific. When you're making an independent movie, it's great because you're free. There's not a lot of voices. You can take chances, do whatever you want. It's just a totally different experience making an independent movie because there's less people involved in the decision. So it's just more fun. But it was distributed by a studio. Again, it wasn't independent distribution, which I think is very, very challenged and not and very unsatisfying. And what happened was with the with the experience I had of both of those movies, I realized, wait a second, there's a way to make independent movies, which I love doing, and way to have studios release those movies, which is what Paramount did with Paranormal Activity. And that's to make low budget horror movies. And that's how we hit on our, that's, that's one of the ways we hit on our model. The other way we hit on our model, to be fair, is one of the biggest mistakes that young people um, make in the movie business 
is when they have a success, this goes for a writer, a producer, a director. When they have a success and they're 26, which is very rare, but their movie gets bought and it's a big deal at Sundance and it's a, whatever it is, it's a comedy. Immediately they say like, I want to make something different and show I can be successful in something different. And it almost never works. And luckily I didn't, paranormal activity didn't happen to me until I was, you know, like I said, in my mid thirties, I'd been doing this a while. I knew what to do with success. And that's so profound. I always think back how lucky I was. If paranormal activity had happened to me when I was 25, Blumhouse would not exist. I would have blown it. I would have thought so much of that success had so much more to do with me than it actually did. When you do this for a while, you realize when you make a successful movie, it has to do with a lot of different things, many, many different pieces. I was a small part of the piece of the success of Paranormal Activity, but I knew what to do with it, which was to just keep making low-budget horror movies. And that was kind of the birth of the company. Start a legacy. Start turning dreams into realities. A better world begins with you. Better communities start with us. I've listened to you speak about that so many times and I've never heard you explain it that succinctly about that moment where those two, the, the $65 million Tooth Fairy movie converged with paranormal activity and how that then led to the business model. And it was such it was such a light bulb moment, you know, it was such a light that, bulb. But to that, Jason, it the the what I don't quite get is paranormal had been kicking around for a long period of time. And um uh the I guess what led you to then say low budget? Because the the tooth fairy, sixty-five million dollars to make, forty million dollar marketing budget, you saw the value of the forty million dollar marketing budget, which you've kept in place. And, and, and that's been obviously a, a key part and, 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 and your partnership uh, with a number of, 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 of studios, but, but, but most importantly, Universal. Um, and at the same time, sitting there and saying, well, let's see if we can replicate what happened on Paranormal by creating a new business model. I mean, that's, that's the piece that I don't quite get of like, we're going to just, I'm going to, I'm going to sit there and look for rather than a $65 million budget movie, I'm going to look for a $4 million budget movie. What yeah, well, there, there, were, there, were, there were a few factors, but here's the main factor. Movies beget movies. Making movies beget making more. When you're making movies, you're going to make more movies. Developing movies does not beget movies. Making movies begets more movies. And to your point of what we were talking about at the top of the interview, the more at-bats at you have, the more hits you're going to get. So I, from a, from the minute paranormal activity happened, I was into volume and the way to get volume is bring your cost way down. So if you have a horror movie and you can make it for a million bucks, 20 pe people, well, if it's the right, I mean, I mean, it's, this is making it simplifying a little bit, but if, if you're getting people with experience to work for way less money, if you could bring the cost down, you're going to get the money for that movie. So the way to make many movies quickly was to keep them cheap. That was the that was the initial that was the initial thing that drove that um, desire to 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 make low budget movies. Now, what happened is as I started making more and more low budget movies, all these other benefits accrued to it. Not financial benefits. Your interests are aligned with the creator, which is probably more important than anything else. Now, I didn't do it for that reason, but I discovered it. 
When you pay someone up front to direct a movie, which we do also do, it just never, the movie's never as good. It doesn't go so well. The process isn't as fun. That's why streaming is just not good for the quality of movies. It's just not, it's not a good model. You, when the director gets paid, if what he or she makes works much more than if it doesn't, clearly the thing is better. Um, um, so anyway, all these other benefits of our model became apparent. But the initial reason was that was the way to get movies made. So I think one of the things I think one of the things that um, one of the mistakes younger producers make and, and is that they're way too precious about the decisions that go into making a movie, meaning they get so caught up in. If it's not this actor, the movie's not going to work. If it's not this, it's not going to work. If it's not this, it's not going to work. And and I learned early on because I, I I saw there in reverse. I'd see all these movies, especially when I was working in my in my in my twenties as an executive at, at a couple different places. All these movies where there were all these arguments over who should be in it with the director, what they should wear, what the wig should look like, what the prosthetic should look like. And nine times out of 10, it wouldn't matter. And they fight for this one actor and the actor would turn out not to be good. And so so when I had my own company, I was able to let go of a lot of decisions and keep my eye on getting what I was doing greenlit. And I think that was a big advantage to me early on. What was it that Donna Langley saw in you? Because you, you, you tell a story about having gotten kicked off the lot at Paramount and your agent, Brian Lord, heading over and meeting with Donna Langley. And so you got to meet with Jason. And the partnership that you've had with Donna and and, and uh, Universal has been incredible. But what do you think it was, Jason, that made her take a bet on you in this model? Uh, that is that that is that that is what happened. Um, Paramount just way, way undervalued. I, I like I said, a small contribution to paranormal activity, but they undervalued it. And what what happened? What the reason I the reason I started at Universal is Donna had a lunch with Brian and said, I want to revive the long tradition of horror at Universal. And Brian said, I know the guy to do it. And it's it's Jason Blum. And that's how we met. And uh, that was like 15 years ago. And we've done we've done like 60 movies with them now. And uh, and we have a great, great, long, terrific partnership. And we really that we understand the DNA of each other's companies. Um, my company is one one millionth the size of obviously Universal, but um, but there's so many tentacles of Universal, and and um, and it's been a great. It's just been a ter- it's just been a great partnership, um, and it's something I'm really proud of. You talk about giving the getting the right director, having directors incented to have an alignment of interest, if you will, in the commercial viability of it, not guaranteeing them wide distribution. Which I think is a is a something that people, for people like me, don't really understand that. But many directors get a commitment by a studio to take a movie that they make and put it out on two thousand screens. You do not give that guarantee because of exactly what I talked about at the top, which is if you've got a movie that you don't think is going to go wide, you have the option to not put the promotional dollars behind it, put it onto streaming, and recoup the. Four million bucks, five million bucks that you've invested in the actual uh, movie. Whereas if you've invested, as you did in Tooth Fairy, sixty-five million bucks in making the damn thing, you better well put another forty behind it. To you got to release it. You, you got to release it. So that's that's one of the interesting things. You, you also mentioned that you very rarely use first-time directors, 
Although Jordan Peele was one of the few first-time directors and boy, oh boy, Get Out turned into being a great one. Well, an interview that I, I know what I would I would I would refute that though he wasn't when I say I'm not using first time directors and we it's true in the movie side of the company but I'm 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 shorthanding for people who are at, just out of film school and made three shorts we we are the best people for our model yeah who are technically first time directors are showrunners and Jordan was a showrunner so he he is not I would explain, not, explain he, to my audience uh, what a showrunner is that's a, a show a, show, a, a showrunner is the director of a I mean, there is an actual director of television, but the person with the most creative power in movies is the director. In television, is the showrunner, and the showrunner is 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 a is a writer, producer, overseer of the whole operation of multiple episodic television. So he hires the director, he hire the, the directors of each episode. He's he or she is involved in the writing, uh, overseeing the writer's room. So the story, the actors, it's this, if there's one single voice in television production, it is the showrunner. And what showrunners are incredible at is thinking on the fly and going fast. And that's what our movies are. But showrunners who are good at their job, their job is incredibly lucrative. So most of them don't are interested in directing movies, but every so often we were able to lure one away and Jordan, you know, Jordan with Keenan Peel was a was a incredible showrunner, now an incredible, you know, movie director too. But I wouldn't say we broke our rule by hiring Jordan Peel. We have broke we have a few times we have hired very young people um who really qualify as first time directors. I just wouldn't put him in that category when we hired him on Get Out. And when you hire a first time director or someone who's just done a couple, you typically get options for their future work? Yeah, we always try and get options. I, 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 you know, some people hate that. A lot of people hate that. I, I feel like if you give someone that kind of a shot and it works, they should work with you a time or two again. You know, sometimes we get them, sometimes we don't. It's they're they're not that effective because of the person. If you have a bad experience, they're not going to work with you again. If you have a good experience, the 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 reason for an option is. If you if you have a bad experience and you have options, no one's going to want to do them anyway. Even if the thing that 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 person made is successful, if you have a good experience, you should really work with the person again. You shouldn't need the options to do it. And oftentimes, someone's representation will say, "Well, don't work with that company again." And options protect against that. They're like moral ethical code enforcers. And I guess I have mixed feelings about them. I guess I have mixed feelings about them. Obviously, what would happen on La La Land? <laughs> That's what I was thinking about. I know you were. Um, yeah, so we did Whiplash. That was a great example. And um, we should have been the producers on La. We were the producers on La La Land, and it was it was the the agreement wasn't signed. And I don't, you know I wouldn't have sued sued uh, uh, the director, but 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 uh, but Whiplash. Uh, once it became successful, you didn't go to lunch in Sundance, Jason. You skipped a lunch in Sundance, and that's how the movie walked away for you, right? No, I no, no. Actually, it's funny that you say that. No, it was in December, and I was gonna have lunch with Damon, and uh, and um, you thought everything was and, done, and, and I thought everything was done, and I thought I thought everything was done. And I didn't have the lunch, which which I hit myself for. But that is not an excuse for not doing the movie with it. They were doing. I was told. I knew we wanted to do La La Land, and I was told, 
Now, it's hard to blame this person. His name is Cooper Samuelson. He runs our movie company. He's one of our most greatest executives. He has equity in the company. And you tried to really my partner. But hold on, hold on. Right. Cooper found Whiplash. So we never would have done Whiplash without Cooper. So I can't really have any high ground blaming Cooper. But Cooper said to me, don't worry, we're producing La La Land. It's all set. You don't, you don't, you don't, don't, don't worry about that lunch. So I blew it off, which, and I know there was a voice inside me that knew it's a mistake. Now, who knows if I had the lunch, maybe the same thing would have happened. Anyway, Whiplash came out and then they threw us off La La Land. And that was a bad thing to do. So if anyone wants to know how important Cooper is to Jason, when Jason was asked what movie took away his title of having the um, lowest gross, widest release movie ever, which was a which, which was a, a badge of honor, I guess. It was Gem, Gem, Gem and the Holograms, which is one. I don't. I thought it was the Empty Man. I thought that's what they came up with. No, I, the newer no, 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 why did the, our, no, we held yeah. the record with Gem and the Holograms. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, and then the Empty Man beat it. It beat right. it. I'm sorry. You lost that crown. Great. Exactly. <laughs> what did you, I want to know, because you're an incredibly competitive person, incredibly competitive person. I what am. did you do curse. when that movie came out and broke that record? I mean, how did you deal with that? Because I, I know you and you're wildly successful and you look really relaxed and all that kind of stuff. But when that happened, I mean, you're releasing on 2000 screens and what was the gross over the weekend? $1.1 million or $1.5 million? Yeah, it was it was it was one whatever it was. It was whatever the number was. It was yeah, it, was it was not what you'd expected. Well, well, to, to to answer your question more broadly, like I I I I I there are, that's happened to me. You know, you know, I've been doing this long enough. That's happened to me. Luckily, not that many times, but certainly, you know, more than a handful of times. And I look, I don't. I mean, how do you deal with failure? I don't know. It's very hard. I'm I'm going through two things right now that are that are you know, at that level. And I don't know. I don't, I mean, I find it really hard. I find it like, it's like I beat myself up for taking it so badly. Then I'm like, well, that's why I'm successful because I take it so badly. Then I'm like, I go through a crazy thing. I mean, I don't know. It's very, very difficult. I think, you know, it's important. I think one thing that drives me crazy is when people don't acknowledge failure. And I think people in the movie business are so guilty of that. They're so scared to say, we tried something, it didn't work. The One of the big disappointments of Gem and the Holograms was the movie, I'm very quick to say when movies we make aren't good or don't work or parts of them don't work or whatever, Gem and the Holograms is and was a great movie. And John Chu turned out to be one of the great directors of our time. So when it's, a, when it's something like that, we had the same situation on The Hunt. The Hunt is a great movie that my friend and colleague, uh, Kim Masters, you know, torpedoed. It still hurts when when a, when an artist does something, their artist works for you and does a movie that doesn't work and the movie doesn't work, I can take it. But when an artist delivers, when your partner delivers, you can understand this, your partner delivers for you. John Chu delivered for us. Craig Zobel on The Hunt delivered for us. And we didn't deliver for them. It drives me insane to this day. It drives me insane. So you talk about Final Cut, and you talk about <laughs> other reasons. No, I like we're moving past that. I think this is. I think this is a really good point, though. I mean, I want to. I want to give people, Jason, a sense of how you do what you do. So you get these great directors. First of all, you find scripts. They have to be small, not too many actors, not too many scenes, and not too many special effects. Is that a is that a fair? 
kind of when when a script comes along and you guys say go no go it, it needs to kind of have those characteristics you're not doing and yes and the one but the most important characteristic you're forgetting is the above the line talent meaning the actor and the director have to agree to work for back end they can't we can't pay them up front right those four things not too many not too many speaking parts not too many locations such and special effects the above the line talent working for back end those four things Talk about not too many speaking parts because there's a there's a little piece there. You got all your movies are union movies. You're a big fan of the SAG, but yes, but 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 if we have this, this is not so true anymore. But it's but it's still to a certain degree it's true. If you're doing a party scene, you know, and there's someone serving an hors d'oeuvre, you know, you have them serve it and don't say anything because if they speak, you got to pay them an extra thousand dollars. <laughs> we're not so crazy about that anymore. But when I started, we were really, you know, we even looked at that stuff, you know, but I, but I would say, you know, we're, we're, if there's, if there's a hundred speaking parts in your movie, we're not making that movie. And then as it relates to how you actually control costs, once you've got the director and the talent to go above the line, if you will. So they're not taking a big guarantee up front. They've got a percentage of what you're going to make in the back end of the movie and, and you're fine. And, 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 and obviously us too. We don't make, we make zero fees on our, on, on our theatrical movies, zero, zero, zero. Right. And then you shoot pretty much everything in LA? No, no, we shoot all over the place. We used to shoot a lot more in LA, uh, but now we shoot all over the place for reasons probably not interesting to your audience, but now we shoot everywhere. Um, but is part of that tax breaks that you get and 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 rebates, or is it just because talent? We shot in L.A. to to go back to Moneyball. We shot in L.A. because no one shot in L.A. There were amazing crews in L.A. and because the tax break, there wasn't really a tax break in California. So for me, our movies were so cheap that we actually didn't chase tax right. incentives. And shooting in L.A. was great because we got great crews. They got to live at home, and there was no competition. When streaming and production started like crazy it became very popular to shoot in California. So then we started traveling because the crews that we, we couldn't get the crews that we could get before. And now our movies are edging up. You know, they, they used to be a million and they're 5 million. Now they're more like 10 million. And at a $10 million, you know, 20% is a lot of money. So we'll go to, we shoot now a lot in Georgia. We shoot a lot in Louisiana. We shoot in New York. Um, um, you know, we, we, we look at rebates. The, the, the key thing about rebates, which, which no one talks about, and some states are much better than others. And, 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 and if you're starting a rebate is when you receive the rebate. A lot of these rebates, you know, they don't pay for two years, which is not, then, you know, it's not, it's not a real rebate or it's a real rebate, but it's a real drag on cash flow. So, so, so it's not just how the percentage of the rebate, but how it's, how and when it's paid. So a movie like Get Out, which cost you, I think, four and a half million dollars to make. Yes. And ended up grossing, I think, 255 million at the box office. Yes. Somewhere around there. So yeah. when that when that 4.5 gets made, you then take that to, and I don't know whether Universal was your distribution partner on um, Get Out or not, but in the model, it would be that you take a four and a half million, four and a half million dollar made movie take it to Universal and then Universal kicks in with their promotion to market that. And that's somewhere between 30 and 50, 40 million bucks of promotion behind a movie like that. Yeah. Just to clarify, Universal paid for the movie. So Universal pays for uh, some of our movies we pay for, some of them we co-finance, we split, and some of them Universal pays for. That particular one Universal paid for. 
Um, uh, and yes, the 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 marketing budgets are between if when we go wide and worldwide between thirty and fifty million bucks. And the demographic that watches your film is. The demographic is is leans more female than male. We're 55, 45 female. So young women love to come see our movies. And we we like under 24 women, right? Under 24, yeah, young women, young women under 24. And they 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 drive the groups to our movies and they drag the guys to our movies, which is kind of funny. And then that then drives a higher social media marketing than for a movie that's trying to target me, right? So does yeah, we like Universal understand that? Yeah, well, different distributors do different things. You know, different distributors do different things. But definitely, as as compared to other movies, as a rule, our percentage of ad spend on social media is much higher than it, higher as 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 compared to television. We we always are much have a higher percentage than most movies on spent on social media than television ads. And every, you know, it's interesting studios, everyone believes different things. Some people believe, you know, you really just can't release a movie without a television ads. And some movies are released without any TV ads. So it really, it really depends. And one of the things, so that the movie makes X hundreds of millions of dollars. One of the things I thought was really interesting, Jason, is that you're very transparent as it relates to if you will, the bonus structure that someone. Yeah, well, 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 I was always stuck. There's the, the only people who benefit over movie definitions are lawyers and the mm -hmm. amount of lawyering that goes into a point and how it defines a point and what is a point and what isn't a point is insane. And it's still insane. And, and, and it drives me crazy. So when we started and we still do this to a large degree, not for everyone, but for, to a large degree, when we started, I said, we're going to pay people based on how much it made at the box office and the language in the contract will be less than an inch long, right? <laughs> like if it makes $50 million and you read that on deadline, it you get a hundred thousand dollars. And if it makes 75 million, you get another hundred. If it makes a hundred million, you get another hundred. And I still, um, um, after a movie comes out, I write, we write all the, I mean, I don't write the checks, but our accountant writes the checks. I put them in the you know, we put them in a FedEx envelope. I go to the post office and I video myself and I send little videos to the participants. I said, today you're going to get a check. I remember sending uh, Catherine Keener a check for a million six from Get Out. I said, today you're going to get a check for a million and six, which is a very, really fun thing to do. And, 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 it, and I think it's really important to, if your model is based on paying people back end, you got to be super transparent and you got to be fast. You got to pay them fast, which is, which I'm very, very, careful that we do. And the, I mean, if you, is there an allure to the big directors to say, Hey, I, I like that versus what the big studios will do for me. In other words, like uh, given that ability to participate on the up end, are they going to the big studios and saying, I want the same kind of deal or is, is your deal the only deal they can get that looks like that? Studios, most studios do a hybrid of what I'm saying. They pay, they pay, they pay a good amount up front against a back end. Um, I don't like that as much. The allure for the directors to work with us is that they can do things with the story that you can't do on a studio movie. And I wouldn't, if I was running the studio, I wouldn't let them do either. When you're spending a hundred million dollars on a movie, there's certain, there's the list of actors you can cast becomes much shorter the things you can do with the story, you can't, there are a lot of things that like, 
you know, you can't kill the lead of the movie 50 minutes into the movie. There, there, there's a type of storytelling and a, and, a, and, and t- types of actors that you can use in our movies that you just can't use in $100 million movies. So yes, there are directors who opt out of making an $80 million movie to work with us in exchange for making something that they have more control over. I, I heard, as I hear you talk about the model, Jason, you constantly get asked, you know, aren't you afraid that somebody mimics this model? Aren't you afraid that the big studios come and kind of, you know, run you out of business? And I I would sit there every time listening to those questions saying to myself, well, you know, when Herb Kelleher created Southwest Airlines, it wasn't some great secret what made Southwest beat United and American and Delta. And United and American and Delta all tried to kind of do similar things to Southwest. But because the business model was built the way that Southwest was made, there was no way for the incumbents to replicate what they did. And I sort of see that happening with you and and the big studios in Hollywood. It's just that their model is just, I mean, they've got 747s, They've got a disparate fleet, if you will. They have to invest in these long hauls. And Herb Keller kind of came in and said, I'm going point to point. I'm going to use the exact same model airplane. I'm going to cut out costs here and there. I'm going to have open seating. I'm going to do all these different things. And the big guys never, even to today, can't replicate what Herb Kelleher did at Southwest. And I view a lot of parallels between what you've done at Blumhouse to the big studios and what Herb Kelleher did to the aviation industry. Well, I'm very flattered. I appreciate that. I, 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 I think there is, you know, it, it's, it's, and this is like the same thing that, are, that you're talking about is, and what people always talk about running a business, which is, you know, very familiar to you is focus, 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 focus. It's really hard to be focused in the movie business because you do a, you do get out and then you watch, then you go to the Oscars with get out. And then you think, ah, oh, maybe I'll make a movie that's, you know, I could get more Oscars for. And one thing that we do that the studios will ne- can never do is we just make one kind of movie. You know, we make horror movies. That's what we do. They can't operate just doing that. So that alone is a big reason that a studio can't replicate our, but we're just in this business. They're in 20 different businesses, by the way, they're in even, they're doing TV and all that, but even within the movies, they're doing romantic comedies. They're doing fast and furious movies. They're doing animated movies. They're doing kids movies. We're doing one thing, one kind of movie. That's always what we're going to do. So that is, but just, let me ask you something on that. Why won't your business model replicate into other genres? It doesn't work in other genres. Why? Why, Why is that? Because, because, well, most other genres are much higher cost. Action movie, comic book movie, all those movies are, you, 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 the, the audience, when they're going to see a Marvel movie, they expect uh, the world to blow up in different ways every time. So you can't do a Marvel movie cheap. You just can't. I mean, Todd... Phillips did the closest version, which is $60 million. And he did pretty damn well with doing it that way. But it's, but, but it's still $60 million. You know, it's a different, it's a different thing. We don't, we don't spend that kind of money on our movies. Um, To give people a sense of that, I heard Jason say, as he was talking about costs, that, that you were asked about the gore in your movies. And you said, you know, we, we've got, we like to leave a lot of that to the imagination. And oh, by the way, blood is expensive. And, and, and I thought that was so, I was like, he's concerned about the cost of, 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 of fake blood. Fake uh, blood is very, fake blood ain't cheap. Fake blood ain't cheap, huh? 
I got it. Anyway, go ahead on. Keep going on that. But I just thought that was an important it's, one. Yeah, it's less. It's all shooting with fake blood is a nightmare because it just it, the continuity. It's just it takes a long time if you're making a super bloody scene. It's that as much as the cost of the blood. But anyway, um, um, uh, and the other thing is if if it's not you know action comic, all those require huge scope. Scope is expensive. Kids movies, animated movies, scope, scope, scope. Scope is expensive. Although we tried it with it. We tried it. We tried Benji. You know, we tried that. The way, why is Benji a Blumhouse movie? Because it was a low cost, uh, wide release or we broad audience movie. Um, um, so so we did try it, which I, I don't want to get sidetracked on that. Um, but then the other genres, you can surely you can make an, a romantic comedy for not very much money, but they're much more movie star dependent. There's no wrote today, you can't have a romantic comedy work theatrically without huge movie stars. And the above the line talent, the stars that we work with, if you're, when you get to a certain category, it's very, like Tom Cruise is not going to work for no money up front. Like it's just not going to happen. And there's like, you know, 10 people who are super, super in the stratosphere. They're not just, they don't, they're not, why am I, why they, they get both. They get $20 million up front and a back end. So that they're, they're, I'm not getting them in our, our movies. So that's why it doesn't work for romantic. The, 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 the pressure on movie stars in other genres is, is higher and scope is higher. So it really only, it doesn't work in other, it only works in horror. It just really doesn't work in other genres. So does it work in TV? For the longest time, it didn't work in TV because TV was not being um, judged by PL. It was being judged by all these other by subscribers. They weren't judging it by profit and loss. They were, they were, they were the stock in television companies was affected by something other than. Now the stock is being much more affected by is more money coming in than going out in television. It's much more, it's much more sensitive to that. So it it is my opinion that TV will shift to something that it was before be more focused on lower cost and be more willing to give ownership if you're if you can make a show for a lower cost. It's not there yet, but I think we're getting to that place. So there may be more room for a Blumhouse type model in television than there than there has been in a long, long time, but it remains to be seen. And I've heard you say that it doesn't work for the streamers, and yet you have a partnership with Amazon to do the Welcome to Blumhouse series. So help me understand that it doesn't work for the streamers, and at the same time, you're doing something with Amazon. Well, we we it doesn't it doesn't work. Meaning we got we got paid up front for that show with the the Welcome to which it, it, we we finished, but we made eight movies for Amazon. We finished the eight movies. It was called Welcome to the Blumhouse. We were paid an upfront fee for every movie, and the actors everyone got paid up front. There was no back end in that show. Got that's, that's that was uh, that was underrepresented directors on all eight of those, Jason. Yeah, that was all underrepresented directors on the on the eight on the eight movies, which I was which I was proud of and. There was a lot of pressure to do a 50-50. I said, if we're going to do it, let's do it. So I was, I was, I felt good about that. And I, and, and the movies turned out great. You know, it was a very fun thing to do. We did four one year and four the next year. We found, we learned a lot about the brand. Like a lot of people would show up when they saw Blumhouse and, um, and, uh, and it was, it was interesting and it was fun to do. Not wildly lucrative because again, you're paid up front. Um, but, uh, but it was good for the company and I'm glad that we did it. Talking about working with underrepresented directors, 
the purge and, and, and get out both had underlying social messages to them. I, I heard one of the things as you were looking at Jordan's script that, you know, the two of you sat down and, and you had to be able to talk to Jordan about race and that the two of you could talk about race. How sort of, I mean, you wouldn't think horror films have an underlying social message to them. How much responsibility do you take to A, work with underrepresented directors as you did on the Amazon series, um, working on a movie like Get Out with Jordan? And then I guess the final question on all that would be, as it relates to the degree of violence in your movies, do you have any level at which you say, no more, we're not going beyond that, I've got a responsibility to not put stuff out there, or do you let the market determine that? Um, uh, the, uh, on the, on the violence, I really let the ratings board determine that the MPAA, like we, we, we would never do more than an R rated movie. There, there are ratings, there's X rating or there's, I think there's something, oh, NC 17, we would never do NC 17. So that's how I deal with that. I, I never do more than an R rating. Um, and, uh, and on the underrepresented, you know, we, we worked with underrepresented directors a lot before, like, you know, it became like the you know every every everybody doing it which i by the way i think is a good thing but we did it we did it because it's good business it represents our audience and if the filmmakers represent your audience the, the stories you're making are going to connect more so we've always done that um um and uh and you know get out was was no exception to that and um you know we did we did um black Klansman. we did two movies with jd dillard we did we've 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 had a history of doing that and I, when I did it, when I, when I, the, the thing that you're talking about is I wanted to be sure that I could be comfortable talking like the, the conversation I had with Jordan um, was, uh, was about the scene where uh, it's the party scene in Get Out and the black people are, there's three black people. And when they're looking at each other, they're kind of acknowledging to each other, like, you know, here we are with a bunch of white people. And, uh, and the camera, I said to Jordan, you know, is that like a real thing? Like, would you do that? He was like, totally you do that, you know? And, 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 um, it's not, and that's not my experience. I haven't experienced that really. I haven't been, it been in a party where there are three white people and everyone else is black. So I, it, I haven't had that experience and it was important to be able to talk about those experiences, um, openly, um, with the director who was making, making get out. And, uh, and we did. You just talked about one scene in Get Out. I want for a moment for you to talk about one other because I think it does go to the core of your movies, how you make them and why you make them. And that's the 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 the, the deer scene. And the 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 fact that that's not special effects, that's not a lot of gore, that's it's it's the acting at the moment and the way that that came. Will you will you explain that to our listeners because I I found when you talked about that that I said that's the genius behind what Jason invested yeah, sure. I think that people who don't understand horror or don't particularly like horror and, uh, you know, a lot of studio executives fall into this category because horror can be commercial. So studios say, give me the scary movie. You know, what's what 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 are your horror pictures? You know, and um, and and you can tell when someone doesn't really understand horror when they focus on like, what are the scares like we need to be, you know, we need more scares. We need more scares. And 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 scares. If you know and love and are a fan of horror, or filmmaker in the horror business, you understand that the scares are 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 not. You know, this is going to sound weird, but people aren't scared of the scares unless what comes before the scares is riveting. So you have to have great drama, and you have to have, um, 
you have to you have to get someone to forget they're watching a movie. And if you forgot you're watching a movie, you could have kind of silly scares that are very scary. So the example you're talking about, about Get Out, in the beginning of the movie, when the deer hits the car, there have been 500 movies where people are driving along and something hits the car, you know? It's not, Jordan's not brilliant because he thought of a deer hitting a car. Jordan's brilliant because he puts this couple a black man and a white woman, they're going out, there's going, they're talking about race, they're going to visit her white family. She's saying like a little tiny things that are like not right. And it's just tense. You're tense. You're if the if you're black or you're white, all audience watching that is like, what is going on in this car? You forget you're watching a movie. The deer hits the car, you jump like crazy. And that and 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 what's and it's 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 really um, um, not appreciating the genius of Jordan Peele or Lee Wanell or James Wan or Scott Derrickson or so many of these filmmakers um, who, who they're not good at doing scares. They're good at doing drama. And that's why the scares are so scary. And that's why I also always say, you know, when we're doing a movie, I'd, I'd rather work. I, 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 I prefer to work with a director who does great drama than like a typical, you know, they've done 10 horror movies director. Uh, there's a case study written on Blumhouse by the Harvard Business School. What was the conclusion when you went to listen to them teach it as it relates to what you what was the question at hand? Quite honestly, what did they write the case on? They wrote the case on whether it was, I made a decision early on in my company, moving back to like um, business here. Uh, so many producers decide they're going to run a production company and then they sit with the key accountants and the CFO and blah, blah, blah. And there says like, okay, so when you get a fee on a movie, that's revenue for the company, right? So there's some production companies where like, the production company gets 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 some money and then the producer gets a fee outside of what the company gets, which is not a real company. So when the producer says, I want to start a company, I want to have, I want to build equity in the company, I want to build, build a company. And then the producer is told, all your fees need to go into the company, and then you draw a salary, which if you want your PL to look good, should not be that big. It always it doesn't happen. That's why they're very, they're not a lot of like, that's why it's very hard to scale a production company because you're building, you're trying to build a company around one person's fees. And so the business question of Harvard Business School about 10, 12 years ago, I decided that the way I would make money was to build equity in a company and eventually sell some or all of the company as opposed to collecting the fees that I make on the individual movies. And 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 I would say it proved to be a good decision. <laughs> That's great. And then the final thing is you just taped Shark Tank. I did. Wow, how was that? It was very fun. I've always wanted to be on Shark Tank, and uh, and uh, and uh, who were the other? Who were the other? Was Mark Cuban on it with you? Who, it was he, Mark. It was Mark. It was Mr. Wonderful. It was Barbara and Lori. Wow. It was, and it was really fun. I did it all day long. We did two episodes, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. They were, one of them was a Halloween episode, of course. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and it was a lot of fun. And they're on uh, October 26th, October 27th. And I know you can't tell us whether you invested, but if you, if you go on as a guest and you say, I'm invested, you are actually 
obligated to invest your own money. Like if you say, I'll- Yeah, 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 it's your own. They don't give you a pot of money to invest, it's your own yeah. money. And um, and uh, and uh, you, 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 you make the deal on the show, there's due diligence, which happens. But if it if it passes, if the person has been telling the truth, then you're obligated to invest. Oh, that's interesting. So afterwards, there is actually a diligence period before you have to go. So it, it, the whole diligence isn't in that interview process. That's that's an interesting. Well, they have to. They have to, you have yeah. to. You have to, if the person you have to you have to. No, the person you I got it. The truth about yeah. the revenue of the company or something like that. But if what they've said on the show is true, you're 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 obligated to to honor your commitment to invest. That's really cool. Yeah, I can't wait to wait. It's coming up soon. It's being here. Coming up soon. I think it's October 26th, October 27th. That's great. Um, you've been super generous with your time. I've loved our conversation. Uh, sorry, we didn't get to go on a bike ride last weekend. Um, no, but we're going to. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to one soon. Yeah, we'll make that happen. <laughs> uh, Jason, great to see you. Um, thanks for taking the time. And Thank we'll you. you soon. Thanks for having me on. I look forward to seeing you. Thanks, bud. Bye-bye.